This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you follow me on Twitter at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, November 19th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is no law against bullshitting in front of a microphone, as Rudy Giuliani knows. There is also no law against election officials calling someone who voted early and telling them, hey, correct a ballot. You forgot to date the outside of it. You forgot to sign it. Come on in and do that or we can't count your vote. In fact, that seems like a downright civically responsible thing to do. That is called ballot curing. But in a press conference today, the president's $20,000 a day lawyer asserted without evidence, sorry, with direct contradiction from a federal judge, that the cure was actually the disease and a pandemic at that. In Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia, if they noticed that there wasn't an inner envelope, they'd contact the voter and allow him to vote again. Or if he didn't fill it out completely, or if he made a mistake and didn't sign his full name, he was allowed to cure it. There is no such provision under the law of Pennsylvania. The Democrat Secretary of State made that up in order to maximize the votes in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and to minimize the votes in the other parts of the state. Clearly illegal, clearly voter fraud, easily provable. Only you didn't prove it. You tried and you lost. Now, as I said before, there is no law against lying into a microphone if you don't slander anyone. But it is also true that the law weighed in on what Rudy Giuliani was saying, Republicans argued that point in front of a federal judge in Pennsylvania, but U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Savage, an appointee of George W. Bush, rejected the lawsuit two weeks ago. It's one of the now over 20 lawsuits the Trump de-election team has lost. So to recap, the de-election team goes into a venue that could do something about their complaints, make the argument, and they lose. Now they're making the argument in a venue where no one could do anything about their complaints. They also just made up really, really crazy charges that pin the Biden victory on voter technology deployed by, well, it's not Karl Marx or Sal Alinsky, but it is a fellow on the Mount Rushmore of crazy Republican fever dreams. This is Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, and the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez! who died seven and a half years ago. Hugo Chavez rigged the election against Trump from the grave. And then he crawled inside Fidel Castro's beard, shouting, by the power of Soros, Project Boogeyman shall live forever. Sounds better in Spanish. In case you were wondering or asking, 
Did Hugo Chavez tip this election? The answer is no. The allegation, such as it is, rests on the fact that a voting system that was used by Chavez and his government in Venezuelan elections was at some time involved in a rigged election. The name of that system is Smartmatic. So the allegation is that Smartmatic is owned by Dominion and Dominion provides the technology that powers balloting systems in Michigan. Only Smartmatic isn't owned by Dominion, and Smartmatic was never owned by Dominion, and they weren't co-owned by the same company, and they didn't steal the Venezuelan election. In fact, I did say only thing, but here's another thing. In fact, it was the founder and CEO of Smartmatic who blew the whistle on Chavez's attempt to skew the election. He picked it up because Smartmatic found irregularities. And remember, Smartmatic plays no role in U.S. elections. A totally different company did, and that's called Dominion. Now, it is true, and I get this from certain YouTube videos, that that company was owned by a Vandalay Industries, a front organization controlled by a holding company for a Mr. Pepe Silvia, a.k.a. Martina Oswald, a.k.a. the wife of Lee Harvey Oswald, a.k.a. an operative called The Rabbit, no doubt a reference to Harvey, the giant invisible bunny, or possibly a reference to Oswald, the bunny that Walt Disney drew pre-Mickey Mouse. Wait a minute. Lee Harvey Oswald is named after two rabbits, two rabbits, a.k.a. Dos Conejos, a.k.a. the codename for the Paraguayan Assassin Brothers, a.k.a. a.k.a. the shadowy fraternal or sororal organization discussed here in a CNN interview with Kamala Harris. What did a.k.a mean to you and what uh, what did it do for you and it's aka a being it's yeah, a sister it had 1908 on the yes, on the tree there that was when it was the founded. oldest black sorority kamala not only admitting to being in aka but three of the first four letters in the name kamala are aka there it is it's in plain sight and it goes to the heart of the biden harris campaign what more do you need i think the trump de-election team rests sadly they won't rest until every fraudulent ballot is uncovered. Okay, we've uncovered them all. We're good. Still, they won't rest because they're wicked, and the idiom is pretty clear on that point. On the show today, I revisit the idea of open carry, specifically as it applies to the case of Kyle Rittenhouse. But first, two eminent minds from each party joined together to repair what Donald Trump has torn asunder. Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer are co-authors of After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. And that's up after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jack Goldsmith was United States Assistant Attorney General, led the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. Bob Bauer was White House Counsel under Barack Obama. As such, each could be described as a meat 
person learned in the law, which is, of course, a quote from the Judiciary Act of 1789, the requirement of an attorney general. I learned that in their new book, Reconstructing the Presidency. It is a project that actually is not not meant to thrill us with antiquated meanings of the word meat, but is a project designed to assess what Donald Trump has done to the institution of the presidency and to try to construct some laws, write some guidelines, rewrite some laws so similar things don't happen next time. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Did you know what meat meant, by the way, before this book? I looked it up when I, uh, I've come across it before, but I certainly looked it up when uh, I drafted that chapter. So that was Jack. I had not come across it (laughs) and I learned it from Jack. (laughs) Okay. So Bob, here is my, my first question will be to you, but it is about a book that Jack wrote. He wrote a book called The Terror Presidency. And my question is, are you miffed that he wasted that title on a president prior to the current one? No, (laughs) no, I'm not. It's an outstanding book. Not miffed at all. I guess that's a way in to say, you know, assess before we get into what your recommendations are, how how deep was the harm that Donald Trump visited upon the institution? To my mind, extraordinarily deep. I think we lay out all the various ways in which he both exposed significant gaps and fissures in the institutional presidency uh, that we are now, I think, sharply focused on as we should be and how he, in many cases, exacerbated uh, problems with the institutional presidency, problems that we try to show in each chapter had been visible before, in some cases quite pronounced, but then were left unattended. And then Donald Trump came along to show that we should have attended to them more closely. And the ways in which uh, he brought that to our attention, the ways in which his indifference to norms, his indifference to law, the rhetoric that he used uh, directed against the very government that he was supposed to be running, all of this, I think, pointed up the urgent need for reform. And Jack, I, you write the book in the same voice, but I take it that you're of the opinion that many times his harms were rhetorical harms, but that doesn't mean that they were less serious harms. So a lot of Trump's harms were at the level of rhetoric in terms of we've never had a president that relentlessly attacked institutions the way that he did. And when those attacks are coming, often in mendacious terms, they're enormously destructive of the regularized running of the executive branch, of Americans' confidence in these institutions. So uh, yes, I think at the level of, and also his, his authoritarian rhetoric, even when, as usually or almost always the case, he never followed through, he wasn't able to, was obviously discombobulating and disrupting. But I wouldn't say at all that it was at the at the level of rhetoric only. I mean, you know, we we document all the really many, many, many norms that he violated, including things like not disclosing his taxes, mixing his business interests with his public interests, intervening in cases publicly and secretly to try to protect himself or his friends, trying to use the Justice Department to um, bring harm to his enemies. I mean, some of those things were at the level of rhetoric, but some of those things spilled over into action as well. And so our, our reforms are not at all just are not are not just aimed towards rhetoric. So as I read your book, I was contemplating this metaphor, a vase that fell from the shelf and cracked and cracked in a thousand pieces and in a in a craze of different uh, cracks. And perhaps one way to put the vase together would be to glue it 
according to the specifics of the pattern that it had cracked. But if you really want to protect the vase, I mean, you could do that and try to do it again the second time and hope you got it right. But in general, the project of vase protection should probably rely on things like vase construction or which shelf to put it on or whether to put it in a uh, whether to put it in a case. So to torture this metaphor a little more, what are some of the big reforms, the overweening reforms that don't go to this or that crack, but go to uh, the vase not breaking uh, in the first place? I'm, I'm happy to just start that off by saying, I think it is fair to say that a topic that receives the most attention in the book overall, although we do cover a wide range of areas in these chapters, but one that I think we give a significant amount of emphasis to is the protection of the rule of law through the proper operation of the Department of Justice, and in particular, the steps that have to be taken uh, to protect against the appearance that the department has become wholly politicized and that it is essentially an instrument for executing the president's political and personal will. So of all of the lovely uh, vases, if you will, that we have lined up on the sill, you know, that's the one, the breaking of which uh, we think uh, has very profound consequences and can be addressed. That isn't to say that other reform areas like war powers, the pardon power, financial conflict of interest don't deserve attention. But the harms that flow from the perception that the executive branch does not have a Department of Justice that functions uh, professionally and without regard to the political consequences of its actions or even the perceived political consequences of its actions, I think that is a high, high priority concern for us. I mean, I kind of want to resist the metaphor a little bit. Um, Bob is absolutely right. One piece of evidence that our that we think that the rule of law issue is so important and central to reform of the presidency is we have a whole part on it with five chapters, I think. But that those reforms in those chapters, there's no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet for any of these things. There's not one little component that if you can just protect that, if you can just wall that off from corruption, we'll take care of the whole thing. And, you know, we kind of re overall resist that kind of, uh, of approach. We don't think that there's a single silver, silver bullet to change the metaphor a little bit that can fix the problem. And that's why we think that we actually had to go into the breadth and depth that we did. There are a lot of problems that have been revealed, some more important than others, some more urgent than others, some easier to fix than others. And I would certainly put the rule of law issues at the top of the list. Um, but... If, if the idea if the, if the idea of the question is what is the most important thing that if you can protect that you can protect the whole thing the presidency I'm not sure that exists you have you gentlemen have a disagreement of sorts um I kind of this is odd I think I agree with you both even though you're disagreeing about what the future prosecution footing should be towards Donald Trump. I guess, Bob, you want to articulate it, and then maybe, Jack, you could say where you take issue, or if you want to do it the other way, that's fine with me. But go ahead, Bob, you could start. Well, yes, I'm not surprised that you agree with both of us, in a sense, because I think both of us understand the other's position and, in various ways, try to incorporate our understanding of the other's position in how we set forth our own. In my own case, um, it starts with the view that we simply cannot have a rule of law arrangement with the president that by operation of executive branch legal principles protects the president from prosecution while he or she is in office and then a, a norm uh, that protects 
uh, him or her upon leaving office that basically calls for prosecutors to stay their hand in the interest of national healing because unity requires it. And that's how many people understand the reason why, and it was one of the reasons why, it wasn't the only reason why Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. It was in the name of national unity. But if we're going to take the position that a president is above the law, then at some point uh, the president has to face the law. In my view, uh, we the, the, the question of what Donald Trump um, has committed in the way of violations of law and uh, how he must be held accountable for them requires an administration prepared to be transparent. So there's no fear of plotting for political retribution taking behind taking place behind closed doors. Uh, there needs to be um, rigorous attention uh, to the worry that a good chunk of the country will have that that retribution has taken place. So I think there's got to be some excellent judgment brought to bear uh, in determining uh, which charges, some pending, should be pursued, and if other bad conduct comes to light, which new charges should be brought. But at the end of the day, the administration should, while being careful in these matters, uh, have to, this or any other administration dealing with an ex-president, uh, has to show that it is going to uh, hold uh, anybody who held that office uh, accountable uh, for violations of the law. And that spills over into my view of pardons, and I'll just stop there, which is I don't believe that um, the pardon power should be exercised on behalf of an ex-president until the process is played out, until charges have been filed. I think a president, ex-president who wants a pardon should file for it, should not be entitled to consideration of a pardon as a matter of right. So I just think there's a way that you can balance these various interests, and my balancing brings me to a somewhat different place than Jack's. Sure. So I accept all of Bob's arguments and their powerful arguments. And um, I would even acknowledge that what he describes as a hit to the rule of law or a cost to the rule of law if Trump has committed crimes that are not prosecuted after he leaves office, I think that's real. And that's a cost of what I'm, what my view is. My basic view is is meant to be pragmatic. And the basic argument is that the costs to the next administration to the country and to our democratic traditions of trying to pursue Trump for possible criminal violations committed in office, that those costs just outweigh the gains. I start off by being skeptical that there is a an obvious crime that Trump has committed that's prosecutable. Let me back up and say John Bolton said that uh, the former national security advisor said in his memoir that that which we've kind of figured out on our own, namely Donald Trump commits obstruction of justice as a way of life. And that's an arresting statement coming from, from Bolton especially. But the problem is that there are serious problems with prosecuting a president for obstruction of justice under the statute as it's currently written. It's one major reform we have, as I mentioned earlier, is that those statutes be amended. So I'm, I'm not at all confident that there's a prosecutable crime that Trump has committed that, that could actually be brought. And it would be very difficult to do. And then there are the costs of trying to do so. There's the, there's the spectacle of one administration checking through the public acts of the prior administration through the lens of criminal law. I worry very much about the precedent that will set, especially coming on the heels of William Barr's Durham investigation, which looked back at 
the through the lens of criminal investigation at the law enforcement actions of the prior administration. I think that's extremely corrosive to the rule of law. I think it would be a huge distraction for the Biden administration, a huge distraction for the Biden administration Justice Department, a spectacle that wouldn't be limited to Trump. It would have to extend to his family and people in the White House and people in the Justice Department. So and given all of that and given that I think it's not likely to end in a successful prosecution of Trump, I think that based on what we know now, it's not a path worth going down, although that's going to be very hard for President Biden to do. The last thing I'll say is that um, I'm not opposed at all to Trump being investigated for his actions prior to his presidency and subsequent to his presidency. So that means, for example, that the, the investigation is going on right now in state court in New York and in federal court in the Southern District of New York, on my view, can and should continue. So my last question is about what will happen. The whole book, the whole discussion has mostly been about what should happen. The lesson of Watergate, I think, was, and the reforms after Watergate were largely informed by the fact that that Nixon was vanquished to, to you know, it's not a legal term, but that's, that's essentially what happened. And you wrote this book without knowing who would be elected. But now that the election has turned out in the way it did, which is a victory for Biden, but not necessarily a repudiation, and that we also know that Congress uh, will be composed how it will be composed, which could be, you know, a 50-50 Senate, but probably not. How much does that change the appetite and possibility of reform? I mean, Bob, I could ask you, how much do you think Joe Biden and the incoming White House is eager to institute some of the reforms that you talk about in this book? Well, without speaking for the president-elect or the administration, I don't propose to do that. I'll, I'll just express a sort of my own view, whether this had occurred this year as it did or it occurred four years from now, which is no longer the case. The country would have been faced with a set of choices, which is to decide that this was a one-off experience, that it doesn't matter if presidents refuse to release their tax returns. That's a norm that will bind some and be disregarded by others. It doesn't matter if they run a business while they're running the government and promote their properties for their own personal profit. Uh, that it doesn't matter how they use the pardon power. It doesn't matter what degree they attempt within uh, current guidelines and you know, arguably at the very outer reaches of the law to politicize the Department of Justice. And you can keep on walking down that list. And what becomes very clear when you ask the question that way is, who in the world thinks we want to go through that again or potentially considerably worse? And I do think there are pieces of the program that we put forward here that could draw bipartisan support, certainly financial conflict of interest and compulsory uh, release of tax returns would be among the first couple of examples I suppose I would cite. But there are others concerning foreign interference, others concerning depolitization of the Department of Justice. Will I, do I believe there'll be 100 senators and 435 members of the House of Representatives stampeding in that direction? No because there are large, large issues the country currently faces, literally life and death issues, and there's only so much that can be accomplished and long-term reform is always very hard. But I do think that this has been a sufficiently, for some traumatic, uh, and certainly for others, many others, sobering experience uh, that it would, I think, be possible to take some of these pieces of the reform agenda that we propose and put them into effect. So I agree with what Bob said. I would just come at it from a different angle, the, the things he just mentioned, uh, conflicts of interest, tax disclosure, DOJ, Department of Justice independence norms, 
These are things about which there was a bipartisan consensus since Watergate. These are things that Republicans believed in as well as Democrats. We quote Antonin Scalia when he was the assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel, saying that, of course, the president of the United States should comply with conflict of interest norms, even if he's not bound by the law. And once Donald Trump has gone from office, it is our hope and belief that to the extent Republicans weren't interested in these reforms, they, they're not going to be opposed to them now. And it's hard to see why Joseph Biden would go to the mat over his tax forms, tax, tax rules, or conflict of interest. He's not going to go to the mat over that. And a really important point that we haven't emphasized enough is about half of our reforms do not require Congress. You're, the bipartisan support is needed for things that have to go through Congress, but a lot of our reforms are things that can and should be implemented in the executive branch. And the last thing I'll say is, and this is just another way of putting what I just said, the reforms we talk about in part three of our book are the hardest. War powers, vacancies, reforms, emergency powers. These are some of the issues where there are traditional uh, clashes between the executive branch and the Congress. And in those issues in any presidency, those types of reforms are going to be harder. But on the ones I was just talking about, these are ones where there's been a bipartisan consensus for 50 years, and we're just basically proposing ways to firm up that consensus in the case of a, uh, uh, in case we have a future and more clever and efficacious Donald Trump as president. Jack Goldsmith served as Assistant Attorney General, Office of Legal Counsel in the George W. Bush White House. He was also Special Counsel to the Department of Defense during the same administration. Bob Bauer served as White House Counsel to President Barack Obama. Their book, their combined effort is called After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. It is published by Lawfare. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Kyle Rittenhouse is at best a confused and deluded 17-year-old who was told that a stupid, irresponsible, dangerous thing to do was the right thing to do. Like I said, at best. Rittenhouse is the Kenosha shooter who killed two BLM protesters and injured another in that city this summer. I've heard people whose legal opinions I respect argue that Rittenhouse has a legitimate chance at a successful self-defense argument. I don't know enough to weigh in on that. I do know that our society deserves a lot of blame if his set of actions are countenanced by the law which isn't to necessarily say the point of intervention needs to be a certain verdict in an upcoming trial. The law can have something to say about these actions before they come to death, allowing an overwhelmed, undertrained, poorly informed 17-year-old to insert himself in a flashpoint with a deadly weapon and to have nothing to say about that other than, oh, we'd prefer he be 18. It's a kind of insanity. But turning Kyle Rittenhouse into a cause is worse than insanity. It's an immorality. And that is exactly what the Proud Boys and those of their ilk have done. Break out Kyle! 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 That was a chant at the so-called Million MAGA March this past weekend. The Washington Post has just put up an excellent, excellent video on the story of Rittenhouse and one of his victims, Joseph Rosenbaum. The Post found that Rosenbaum threw a plastic bag at Rittenhouse containing the objects that he claimed on his way out of a psychiatric hospital earlier that day. The Post interviewed many people, including Rosenbaum's fiance, Carrie Ann Swart, about the killing. 
There's an unarmed person in front of you and you're holding an assault rifle two feet away. But yet, on the other hand, um, you know, Joe, you shouldn't have been down there, you know? And that's the two sides I deal with. Like, what were you doing? I go between being angry to just being sad, but mostly just sad. This report is, as I said, really insightful. And it did get me to thinking about Rittenhouse, not in a new light, but in a fuller light, which for me at least did nothing to convince me of his guilt or innocence, but did nothing to change my opinion of the idiocy of his actions. But, and maybe this is just because I was talking about open carry yesterday, and I talked to David French recently, and it came up in my interview with him. So I want to play for you the three and a half minute chunk of our conversation and then come back afterwards and tell you what my insight is. So I began by asking French, well, let's just play it. When protesters show up anywhere, but we saw this recently outside the recount in Arizona, and they bring long guns with them or open carry, which is a law that you favor, does that, does that give you pause or bother you? Oh, well, let's be careful. Uh, I do not favor open carry. Um, oh, okay, I'm sorry to Yeah, I do not favor. That. I think that the Constitution requires lawful carry outside the home, but I do not, I do not favor open carry. I think open carry is uh, intimidating. It's dangerous. We are very fortunate that we've not had a very bloody incident. Um, I'm sorry, I don't think that these guys who are LARPing a SEAL Team 6 can necessarily be trusted to exercise trigger discipline in atmospheres of extreme distress. Yeah, well, you know, the weeding out process for being one of those guys is precisely nothing, so. Right, I mean, yeah. all you have to do is sort of like <laughs> buy some stuff that looks kind of sort of military and yeah. and strap it on, looking, looking by yeah. the way, like a complete idiot. Like if you've, yeah. if you've actually served and you've seen and you've actually... If you've worn body armor and in as as I should tell listeners, you have as a member of uh, the JAG force and who was deployed overseas in Iraq, right? Right, right. I mean, I've been on yeah. patrol in Iraq, you know, mm -hmm. and you're you've got your what we what we called battle rattle on, and all of this stuff has to be done in a particular way for it to be effective or meaningful. And you look at these guys and you just think, what on earth are you doing? I mean, it looks like very poor superhero costuming. But the thing is, it's intimidating. It's intimidating. And we saw this in some of the anti-shutdown protests where, you know, these armed protesters went into the Michigan State House and ended up shutting down the proceedings in the Michigan State House. And they say, well, it was all peaceful. It was all peaceful. Well, I mean, you know, if somebody is walking into your house and they've got a gun and they, and they don't point it at you, it doesn't feel peaceful, right? That doesn't feel really peaceful. It doesn't feel safe. Yeah. So yeah. I the think thi the, the thing that makes the lion on the leash a non-threat isn't the leash, right? It's like not bringing the lion into the room in, this, in the first place. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, no, I, I think, and I've long argued that I think open carry is often dangerous. It's unsettling. You know, you hate to bring sort of like manners into it. It's rude. <laughs> yeah. And it's often done intentionally to unsettle people. We have to be you know, quite honest about what's being done here. It's done to intentionally intimidate, whereas concealed carry is intentionally trying not to intimidate, and it's a purely self-defense mechanism. You're not trying to unsettle those around you. It's purely a self-defense tactic. It's not an intimidate-everyone-around-me tactic. And in fact, open carry 
is ineffective. It, it decreases your effectiveness in self-defense because if someone wishes a group of people harm, who are they going to strike first? They're going to strike first at the person who's carrying a weapon who they would perceive as a threat. And so um, just from a tactical perspective, from a civility, decency perspective, from a desire to protect peaceful dissent, I, I really don't like what we've been seeing this as I called it before, SEAL Team 6 LARPing, and it, it's unsettling, it's dangerous, it, it should stop. And in the case of Rittenhouse, it was deadly. SEAL Team 6 Youth Auxiliary Corps. So here's my thought about how to consider this fool who killed people based on a notion. Kyle Rittenhouse is the horrific embodiment of a broken culture. I don't mean all of us, or American culture. I don't even mean gun culture or what gun culture means to a guy like David French, who is a fierce advocate of the Second Amendment, who owns an AR-15 and argues for its efficacy as a self-defense weapon. If French is saying open carry is antithetical to civility and a smoothly operating society, pause to consider that. If Kyle Rittenhouse has become a hero and a cause, consider and shudder at that. This was a possibly murderous young man who was told by every force that surrounded him in his culture that what he was doing was proper, taking up arms, injecting himself into a dangerous situation. And the sick thing is, given his status among the MAGA crowd, he's still getting the message that he's done everything right. He told the Washington Post he looks back and is glad he took his weapon with him to play make-believe in a city that didn't ask his teenaged, untrained self for assistance. He's an indictment of a culture, the culture that he's a part of. This open-carry, gun-fetishizing, faux-militaristic, heartless, stupid, cowering-but-aggressive culture. Watch the Post video. Think about Rittenhouse as a person. And Rosenbaum. Think about him and also Rittenhouse's other victims, who were only mentioned in passing. And then think about what put him there, and tell me something isn't seriously wrong and a little cult-like with this slice of the culture. And also consider what's stopping the next heavily armed protester at a Trump rally from perceiving a threat and opening fire. It's not the law. What is it? Is it his good judgment? Is it his training and instinct? It's certainly not the knowledge that if he does kill a person, a person his side hates, that he'll be treated as any less than a hero. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Margaret Kelly, a.k.a. Kermit, a.k.a. The Muppet, a.k.a. The Felt Frog, a.k.a. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat, a.k.a. Linda Lovelace, a.k.a. Ada Lovelace, a.k.a. The Computer, a.k.a. The Commodore 64. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He does so in cahoots with Ricardo Isaacson dos Santos Liete, a.k.a. Brazilian soccer star Kaká, a.k.a. K.A.K.A., and also with the late Hawaiian Senator Daniel Akaka, a.k.a. A.k.a. K.A. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She'd have become a conspiracy theorist, but she's allergic to red yarn. The Gist. There's an old saying among the conspiracy folks about the stages of nuttiness. First you go angry, then you go crazy, then you go Chavez. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>